I want to thank everybody for being here. I saw some different faces. I've got some friends that came in just this morning from Germany and, and, and uh, France. Are you in France right now? In France? And I asked them how long they're here for. And they said they were here for class. And, and I'm going to visit with them briefly afterwards. And then they fly out today. So uh, they, they, I know, uh, uh, watch and keep up with class some. And it's an honor to have them here. It's an honor to have all of you here, whether you're regular attendees or not. And so we are in the process of going through the early part of Genesis. Uh-oh. <clears throat> there. We're in the process of going through the early part of Genesis, and we've basically sort of made it to the flood. But we're not going to hit the water yet today. We've got to get warmed up. We're just going to stick our toes in the water. We're not diving in head first. So what I'd like to do first is look at the chapters between the fall of, of Adam and Eve and they're getting kicked out from the garden and the beginning of the flood story. And there's a couple of things that happen in there. Uh, one of our class folks, uh, Eric, sent me an email and said, hey, if you get a chance, be sure to cover these verses. Uh, uh, and I thought, you know, I, I've got to be fair. I need to do that. So here's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to look at the lineage of Adam and Eve. We want to see what happened to their family, in a sense. And after we do that, we're going to then look at the genealogies. Because if you look at the genealogies in early Genesis, they read, um, shall we say, shocking. Uh, these people lived to be like, some of them, 900 and some odd years old. And, and I, I've, I've known a few people who've lived past 100. And most of them were like, please, I'm ready to go. Some weren't. But most of them were kind of like, you know, my friends are gone, my family, you know, da-da-da-da-da, I'm ready to pass on. I don't know if I live in 900 and some odd years. If you do, I promise you, you don't have enough saved up for retirement. <laughs> I don't care who you are. But we're going to look at those genealogies and we're going to try and give some understanding of why they are the way they are. And then we're final touch that we're going to look at are just lessons learned. What can we take home from these interim chapters between the fall of Adam and Eve and the flood of Noah? So if that's our agenda in front of us, let's start with the, the genealogies and the lineage. Now, this means we've got to stay in the flow of where we've been studying with Genesis. So allow me to reestablish the flow. Genesis as a book is the prequel to the other four books of Moses. The other four books of the Torah, the Pentateuch. So you've got Moses coming in Exodus, and you've got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the story of Moses. But Genesis is the prequel that makes sense of the other four books. We've got to remember that Genesis was written for all people for all time. But it was written specifically to ancient Israel. And that makes a difference. 
And that's why we read it in its ancient Hebrew. That's why we understand it through its ancient vocabulary. And then we also try to understand it first in light of the way the ancient Israelites and Moses would have understood it, would have thought about it. So Genesis begins with the creation of all things. And the creation as described in Genesis was very different than what Moses would have learned in Pharaoh's house. It's very different than what the local cultures around Egypt in the Levant and in Mesopotamia up into the north and the east. It's very different than what they understood. And you have three days of God forming and three days of God filling. And then you have a day of rest. And then we move into Genesis chapter 2 where we've got the story of God creating Adam and Eve. And they're in a relationship with him and they're placed in a garden of fullness of Eden, bless you. And within the framework of that, life is good until they sin. But when they sin and they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they are expelled from the garden. A curse is put on them, a curse is put on the earth, and a curse is put on the serpent. That's where we've gotten to in our study, and we transition now to the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I had originally planned on reading through this story with you. I'm not sure how well that's going to work without a remote, but let's see how well we can do. I I want you to get the story, and then we're going to go back over it and pick out a couple of details. But let's just read the story together. Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And the implication there in the Hebrew as you're reading along is another child conceived and born with the help of the Lord. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, we're reading this in the 21st century. I want you to try and put on your 2000 B.C. or 1200 BC hat. So you got one person who's a shepherd, and you got another who's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. He didn't just bring from his sheep, he brought the firstborn. The implication from this is, is that Cain just brought some of his stuff. Wasn't necessarily the first fruits. Wasn't necessarily the best fruits. Might have been the bananas that were about to go blinky. We don't know. But the implication is, is that he's not bringing the best as Abel who brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, he brings the good stuff. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. 
But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You give God the best. So Cain gets ticked off. It's translated by the ESV, very angry. But in Lubbock, you could translate that ticked off. His face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you ticked off? Why are your face falling? If you do good, if you do right, it's going to be taken, accepted. But if you don't, if you send me the junk, if you treat me with disregard, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is contrary to you. Sin does not want what's best for you. Do you think the serpent was doing a big favor to Adam and Eve, inducing them to get kicked out of their garden? It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't on their side. You must rule over it. Now Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now the Lord says to Cain, this is kind of like, so remember in Genesis uh, uh, 2 and 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, well, God comes to him and starts quizzing him with questions. He's doing the same thing here. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? It echoes the, where are you, Adam? He said, I don't know. Am I responsible for him? And the Lord said, what, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground. So just like a curse follows sin in the garden, a curse follows sin outside the garden. Now you're cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it's no longer going to yield to you its strength. This is going to affect your ability to work. You're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That's the curse. Being a fugitive and a wanderer, that's a tough way to make a living if you're a farmer. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I'll be hidden. I'll be a fugitive. I'll be a wanderer of the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said, not so. If anyone kills Cain... Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. It's going to be an important figure. Keep that in your brain as we're reading. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city... He called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch is born Erod. And Erod fathered Mahuyael. Mahuyael fathered Methushael. 
Methushael fathered Lamech, or Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Guy gave me a bruise, I killed him. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. Now, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth. She said, God's appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. To Seth was also born a son, called his name Enosh. At this time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that as the story of Cain and Abel, let me urge you, please, do not simply read this for the plot line. This is not simply a third grade story to give you a plot line. We read for plots in third grade. I mean, the cat in the hat. That's a killer plot line, man. Teaches disobey your parents and it's all going to turn out fine. But you will have a mess to clean up. But as we got older, we quit reading plotline books. And we started reading books for something more significant. An example, if you would like to read the story of Cain and Abel as interpreted by John Steinbeck, you can read East of Eden, his best novel, in my opinion. East of Eden, don't read it simply for the plot line. But read it and understand that Adam, bad guy in the story, has two sons, Cal and Aaron, who are Cain and Abel. And if you'll read the story, you'll see why he's entitled it East of Eden. And you'll be able to chart through where he's taken the story of Cain and Abel and laced it into it. There's a narrative, but there's something deeper than the plot line that we're to be reading for in the story of Cain and Abel. We should read it and see in Cain a rebellious fellow. Cain is not just uh, our next door neighbor. Well, hopefully not your next door neighbor because he's a killer. Now, some people, I mean, killers have next-door neighbors, so some people live next door to the killer. But, but Cain is, is a killer. He's rebelling against God and what God stands for. And so when you read this passage, and the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood's crying to me from the ground. You're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. When you work the ground... It shall no longer yield to you its strength 
you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That's the curse. He acknowledges knowing the curse. He says, okay, well, that's what I'm going to be. And then what does he do? He goes and he builds a city. The wanderer tries to escape the curse and doesn't have regard for what God, the punishment God gave him. He's a rebellious little cuss. And by the way, when you're reading this, there is a very subtle comment that's being made here on the dangers of cities. That's where the rebellious, wicked fellow went. I love big cities. I love small towns. But I mean, I'm a big city guy. I grew up in Lubbock. <laughs> and uh, you can find some incredible things in big cities. But I want to tell you, you concentrate a whole bunch of fallen, evil, wicked, rebellious people into one small geographic area, and you'll find all sorts of seedy, bad things happening there as well. Tim has, can tell you stories not that he'd want me to single him out but he has because of his job he has seen how the city can produce a seedy underworld for lack of a better way of saying it so you got Cain he's a rebellious fella now here's an interesting thing he's bad but his offspring are getting progressively worse See, Cain knows his wife. She conceives and bears a son, Enoch. This is the first birth that's not credited to the Lord at all. When Cain and Abel are born, they're linked together as something God's given as hope. When Seth gets born later, Eve conceives and she gives birth to Seth and it's credited to the Lord. But the writer leaves that out here. This is not a godly line. And you get it down to Lamech, and look what Lamech says to his wives, plural. It's our first polygamy. Polygamy gets allowed by Moses, but polygamy is never God's design. And polygamy leads to trouble over and over and over again. And I say this as a warning for you women out there who are looking for three or four husbands. There's a subtle comment there. There's a subtle comment here on the dangers of careers. Because you've got this bad, rebellious, seedy line that's getting worse and worse and worse. And Lamech, I mean, look, Cain killed out of anger and jealousy. Lamech kills because someone bruises him and brags about it afterwards and says, I get 70 times. The protection of Cain, in a sense. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. There's a warning here. When you're in isolation, there's a danger associated with that. We need to be careful about being in isolation. Then, his brother's name is the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Music. Music can be a wonderful thing, praise God. 
But music can also be a festering place of rebellion and an expression that, that manifests some of the seediest, horrid parts of life. And then you've also got Tubal Cain, who was the metal worker. Again, if you go back and you want to find old pieces of bronze and iron, we've got some in the library that you can go look at. They're weapons. You can use bronze and iron. You can use science. You can use those things for good things. But we're to be aware that they can also be used for bad. Those are just subtle warnings about the dangers associated with careers. Care must be taken to use life for good, not evil. Because even the best of the best can be distorted and used for evil. That's the lesson of the Garden of Eden. And the lesson is reinforced through the story of Cain and his offspring. So the story of Cain is one that is one of evil. But when Cain slays Abel, it does not end Eve's lineage that God has prophesied will be used to destroy Satan, the serpent. Because Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, called his name Seth, because she said, God has appointed. You see, it's another one in the godly line. God's behind this. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel that Cain killed. To Seth, another son was born, called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Something Jared referenced in the sermon this morning. People are seeking relationship with the divine. But boy, it seems pretty clear it's one line and not the other. So those genealogy lineages, we've got them there. They help us understand some concepts. But now we go to the ages. I want to spend a moment of time here. This is kind of, I'm going to nerd out on you for a minute, okay? Um, look at them. Okay, we've got two lines here. We've got the line of Cain that we've looked at with all of its negativity. Then we have the line of Seth. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, created him, blessed him, named them man when they were created. Adam had lived 130 years. Fathered a son in his own likeness, named him Seth. Days of Adam after he fathered Seth, 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. All the days Adam lived, 930 years. And he died. Now, when Seth lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. All the days of Seth, 912 years, he dies. Enosh lives 90 years, fathers Kenan. Lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years. So he's got 905 years. Kenan lived 70, does Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years, other sons and daughters. He hits 910. He dies. Mahalalel lived 65, fathers Yored. 
After he fathered him, another 830 years, he hits 895. He died in his infancy. Jared lived 162 years, fathers Enoch. Lived after he fathered Enoch, another 800 years. He hits 962. Enoch fathers Methuselah. But Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. He has other sons and daughters. It never says he died. Now that's going to become important later on because the only other person we know of like that, I mean obviously the resurrected Jesus, but the only other person we have is the prophet Elijah who's taken up the fiery chariot. And the implication behind this is that there was a very close relationship between Enoch and God. And God always gives you a chance to grow closer. And for Enoch that meant pulling Enoch home in a sense. But in, in Jewish literature, especially between the New Testament and the Old Testament, that intertestamental literature, there's a group of writings we call pseudepigraphal because we don't really know who wrote them. And so pseudo, fake authorship, epigraphal, fake writer. And some of them are books that are attributed to Enoch. You've got the book of the secrets of Enoch. And, and these were well-known literature. The theory was, hey, he left and never died. He could come back at any point in time and kind of dictate some interesting stuff. So people would write stuff claiming to be by him. Some of it is referenced. One of the books in particular is referenced by the New Testament writer Jude. Not as being real, but as being, it's just a storyline that's referenced by Jude because everybody was reading it. But anyway, Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathers Lamech. Methuselah lives after he fathered Lamech, 982. Methuselah tops the scale, 969 years. Lamech lives 182, fathers Noah. After he fathers Noah, he lives another 595. He has other sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech were 777 and he died. Noah's 500 years old, father Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, if you're like me, you're reading that and you're saying, whoa, what is going on here? Can you imagine? <laughs> now, Genesis, as I said, is written for us, but it's written to ancient Israel. With ancient Hebrew, ancient vocabulary, ancient culture, ancient understanding. If we could, we'd take a field trip right now and we'd go to the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford. Which, by the way, is the oldest English-speaking museum. Second oldest university museum in the world. Um, Oldest museum, obviously, in England. And though they don't have it on display right now... (laughs) They own one of the most valuable pieces for understanding this genealogy that we've got. It's a piece uh, uh, called the Sumerian King List. I've got uh, the four sides of it and two other views of it here for you to see. Um, This piece was found in, I think, 1923 or something. It uh, was authored originally, we believe, in Larsa which is a modern Iraq. Larsa is roughly here. I have a star to put up for Larsa. Larsa is roughly right there. 
So they found it. It's written in cuneiform script in the ancient language of Sumerian from the Sumer people. And so the Sumer people have put together a king list here. Now, I want to explain to you what this is. And to do so, I got my sister Catherine to help me. So, Catherine, Catherine, do you have a minute to come up? Can you come up? Can you all say thank you to my sister Catherine? So I told Catherine, I said, I want to do a little demonstration, but I need some of, I need the Sumerian, I need, I need me one of them prism things. See, here's how they would write. They would take clay, okay, is it safe to lift? Okay. So this is the size that that is. It looks really big when you put it up here. But that's because that's some huge screen. But it's not so big. This is it. It's almost what? Eight inch? What did you make? Eight? Eight. 7.8 by 3.5. And this was the way they would write. And this, they, the clay will harden, it will cook, and it turns out to be good because even when the fire would burn the city down, oh, sorry, even when the fire would burn the city down. Now, they would take this and they would, am I, there. This is a stylus. This is some of the oldest writing. So cuneiform is just the form of the letters that's done in the clay. Um... We use a Roman script, but you can take our English letters and you can write English or you can write Spanish or you can write Italian or you can write French or you can write German. Same alphabet. Well, same thing. They, they use the same form. You could write, oh, well over a dozen languages, but most everything we've got is, is Sumerian or Akkadian. We've got some Hittite stuff, but, but you can sit here and what they would do. Okay, Catherine, how do I get smooth? Here, you smooth for me, please. Oh, good. So, look at that. They smooth those little puppy out. And you wonder why there are cracks in it? There are going to be cracks in it. You're going to cook it and there's still going to be cracks. But they just write over the cracks. This is their paper. And so they could sit here and they take this stylus and they can make marks like this in the stylus. See that? And then you draw, take this part of the stylus you can draw a little bitty line. You can do the same thing right here. And you have just read some... Actually, this has to hook up. There. You've just read some cuneiform. That sounds like M-A. That's the sound for M-A. They had a bunch of different characters that would have like these one syllables. Okay, Catherine, you're going to have to fix one more thing before I let you go, so don't leave. Um, Then you could sit here and you could do more. And you could take this and go like this. And then you could go up with one. Then you could go down with one. And then you could take one and kind of do like some little flag thing on the side. And do another one like this with a little flag thing. And I've just written my name in Akkadian using cuneiform. If you don't pronounce my name right. Now, let's say I made a mistake. Catherine, what do we do if there's a mistake? 
Look at that. She has just erased her little brother. Mom, she's been trying to do this for 63 years. I love you. Thank you so much. Can you join me in saying thank you to Catherine? So the problem is, you look at this. I was doing the best I could. Now compare this to the small little writings on these little puppies. I mean, they're writing a lot more than my name. It's really hard to read. But it's very worth reading. So let me give you an idea of the Sumerian king list. Now this is written, depends on which scholars. I mean, they didn't write down there, hey, for Champion Forest Baptist Church, you need to know I have written this X number of years before Jesus comes. Um, We don't have that, but we can date pretty well. This is probably from about the time of Abraham or a little bit later. Maybe Joseph, that generation um, uh, to give you some type of spacing. By the way, it was found just north of where Abraham was from. But this is what they had, and here's what it tells you. After the kingship descended from heaven, the kingship was in Eridu. In Eridu, Alulam becomes king, and he reigns for 28,800 years. Aligar ruled for... Look, one of the big fights we're having in America right now is whether either of the leaders of either of the major parties is too old to be president. (laughs) They were puppies compared to these guys. Aligar rules for 36,000 years. Two kings, they rule for 64,800 years. Eridu falls, kingship's taken to Bad Tabira. Bad Tabira, um, Inman Luana rules for 43,200 years. Inmal Galana rules for 28,800. The divine Demuzi, the shepherd, ruled for 36,000 years. Three kings, they rule for 108,000. Five cities, eight kings rule for 385,000 years. 85,200 years, that's their mistake. Then the flood sweeps over. Nibia, then the floods. This is all before the flood. Then the flood comes and you start getting people to be a lot more realistic in their ages. They aren't initially, but they are pretty quick. And this becomes very important because it speaks to the theology behind the biblical dating, but it also speaks to what the biblical dating is. Namely, we don't have a clue. Some believe that these were astronomical renderings. Some believe that this is symbolic. Nobody's really advanced any recognition yet of exactly how these folks, whether in Sumeria or whether in in Sinai, we don't understand today how they determined this stuff. But we know that they had, that this has some meaning or significance that's just lost to us. So if you want to sit there and, and try to figure out why we don't live as long as they lived, there are lots of people who've put forward a lot of theories. But I would urge you to also recognize don't waste too much time on it unless you want to get the Nobel Prize for translating and understanding Genesis 4 and 5 because nobody's been able to figure it out yet. But there's a host of possibilities that we'll talk about. The main thing we need to recognize is the difference in the lines between Cain and Seth. 
Because with Seth, you've got this long line that seems to have some blessing from God as the people call upon the name of the Lord. And man begins to multiply on the face of the land. Daughters are born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. See, I think this is a reference to the two separate lines. The line of Cain and the line of Seth. The sons of God, these are the ones who've descended from Seth. Saw the daughters of man, these are the daughters that have descended from Cain, were attractive. They took them as wives. The Lord said, my spirit won't abide in man forever. Now, I'm giving you one suggested reading of that. Others believe that this is a reference to and fallen angels as the sons of God. There seems to be some substance behind that if you read Jude, which we'll talk about later. Not today, though. But either way, you've got this problem happening. And the Lord says, my spirit won't abide in man forever, for his flesh in his days will be 120 years. Now, you may be saying, well, I hadn't hit that. 120 years, that one we can handle. In their mentality, a generation was 40 years. So he's saying three generations. We can translate that three generations. So you get to see your kids. You get to see your grandkids. You may get to see your great-grandkids, but that's about it. And that's the premise behind that. You've got those three generations. This is what you've got. Now, it also says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Nephal is the Hebrew word that references something that falls. It's it's something that's fallen. Um, It it can also refer, as a result, to... um, If you add the yod in there, it it can be a giant or a tyrant or a bully. So we've got the fallen ones were on the earth in that day. Or maybe the giants or the bullies. And also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old the men of renown. So if that's the Nephilim, I got uh, sent an email saying, can you talk about it from Eric in here? Um, Eric, there's not much more to say other than what's there. Everything else is speculation. And so you've got different ways of looking at it. But the these are fallen people or these are big bullies or these are something that is atrocious because you have, in my understanding, the line of Seth, which is trying to be a godly line, calling upon the name of the Lord, being polluted by people who have no regard for God and are rebellious against him. They're interbreeding and it's setting up a wretched society where there's hardly any righteous except for Noah. And so next week we're going to get into that some more. But I want to pause before we get to that next week because I really want to spend a little bit more time dealing not just with the genealogy, not just with the ages, but let's look at the lessons we can learn from this. What can we take home? This book is a book that must, 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 if you really want to plummet, you really need to read it in context. And you really need to to get into an ancient mindset. And and here's here's a teaser for what I'm talking about that we'll look at next week, um, God willing.
we've hit the point where um, Noah is born. And Noah, if you look at this, hold on, let me, let me move my notebook. Look at this passage on Noah. Noah and the flood. Noah, right before we get there, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, when I say we've got to read this with ancient ideas and understand ancient vocabulary, this is a classic example. Hebrew, in its ancient form, could be written right to left or left to right. What wound up becoming the normal, we read from left to right. Normal Hebrew today and for the last 3,000 plus years is right to left. But originally it could be written even upside down. I mean up and down. It could be written left to right, right to left. It makes it really fun if we find really old writings to try to read them. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is Noah spelled backwards in the Hebrew. So God looks at Noah and the way God reads Noah in his God's eyes, he reads it backwards. That happens not just here. That happens throughout. We'll, we'll come to the story. Actually, we may not hit it, so I'll throw it in now. We'll get to a point where one of the offspring of the patriarchs is Ur. It's translated E-R. Um, here. Translated E-R. And there's just one verse. And it just says Ur. And, and E-R is actually in Hebrew. Um, it's I and Resh. So that's the Hebrew writing. It says Ur was evil in the eyes of God. Evil is the exact same word. It's just spelled backwards. Whoops. Yeah, there we go. So it's, it's Ra instead of Ur, same two letters. See, in the eyes of God, he saw him for who he was. He was evil. We can't trick God. God knows who we really are, even if it means spelling our name backwards. And so we have Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the way of it. These are some lessons that we can learn from this. Um... Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is what we can take home. So with that, points for home. Number one, be careful with your life. Please. I mean, think about the cities. They can be places of corruption and rebellion, but they can also be places of worship and redemption. We have this negative connotation in the offspring of Cain. But this is part of a long biblical story. And so you'll see Babylon, that great city, is considered a place of great wickedness to Israel and to Judah. 
It's even used in the book of Revelation, which we'll speak about next spring, God willing. It's even used as a metaphor for Rome, that ancient wicked city. But those same scriptures that can talk about the wickedness of a city are also the ones who talk about the cities as a place of worship and redemption. The first three verses of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion. In the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God's made himself known as a fortress. There is a power of worship that can be present in a city as well. We live here in the fourth largest city in America. And there are parts of this city that desperately need the light of God to shine in it. There are parts of this city that are wicked. There are people in this city that need desperately the light of God in their life. But there's also some intense wonder here. Do you realize in this church last week, our new members class We had over a hundred people place membership in this church just in the last week. They had to move the early service, the 8.30 service, out of the chapel, 8 o'clock service, out of the chapel into here because there wasn't room. And now they're going to have to move the walls out because there's still not room. The worship and the opportunities for service are phenomenal because of size. But we just need to be careful how we use these and and how we walk in these. Because the second lesson I draw from this is good leads to good and bad leads to bad. Um, Trying to think whether or not this is okay to say. I will err on the side of Caution, and not tell you what I was thinking about telling you. Instead, I will say this. The Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever. He's flesh, and there's going to be a limit to his time. But while there's a limit to our time, how we live those days makes a profound difference. I grew up in a high school where a lot of kids were... Um, big uh, into alcohol because they uh, had parents that would just, I guess, leave or whatever and and the kids would throw parties and uh, the the alcohol was a big deal there. I know it's stunning because most people think of Lubbock as pretty much Eden before the fall, but (laughs) it wasn't always that way, being a big city. And... um, And I've known people in college and in law school, and now I've known people in my legal career who um, think there's just great fun in going somewhere and getting drunk. But I also can tell you that I've handled more cases, more lawsuits than I ever should have to, where someone was driving drunk and they blew through a light or they blew through a stop sign or they blew out their lane And they killed or seriously hurt someone. And you sit there and you think, you know, 
you're making choices with your life. And we are naive, if not blinded, if we don't realize that every choice we make has a consequence. Paul says in Galatians, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that also shall he reap. It makes a mockery of God to think that we can live walking in evil and nothing bad's going to come out of it. It comes out. If we call upon the name of the Lord, there's blessing and, and glory. But if we live that life making the other choices... The consequences are real. I don't want to be godly just because my godliness is not just, oh, i got to earn my way into God's good smiles. Godliness comes out of a desire to walk in the blessings of God. To walk where God understands. And that doesn't mean there's not hardship. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle. And that doesn't mean we don't fight disease. And that doesn't mean we don't... All of the rest of that. But it means we do it under His care. Under His protection. With His guidance. Trusting Him. When it's all said and done. We'll be right where we need to be. Last point. In Luke. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back through Seth and Adam. Luke 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, being the son, supposedly, of Joseph, the son of Heli, walks all the way back to the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Because Jesus is the promised one. And in spite of all of the sin... And in spite of all the disobedience and in spite of the murders and in spite of the curses and in spite of the consequences and in spite of fill in the blank, God's purposes will not be thwarted. His promises will not fail. And that should sustain all of us as we try to walk in that way. Next week, we will pick back up here and we'll be talking a bit more fully. But until then, let me bless you in the name of Jesus. God, we ask in your name a blessing upon all who hear this message that you will prick our heart to understand the importance of being fully devoted to you. Making our choices based upon your will, your character, your morality, your guidance empowered by your spirit to overcome the darkness that seeks to invade the life of your children. Let us do so, Father, for your glory, but also for the good of the people around us that we love and care for. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.